0: We're live. Good morning. It's another Friday. I'm gonna retweet my things here. I am live. And we're off. Lots of <laughs> lots of stuff today. I'm gonna. To, how are we gonna do this today? We'll get to the interesting bits. I think uh, most people who've been watching during the week would have seen some interest. I mean, it's not that unusual. If I'm completely honest. Not the first rodeo, so to speak. Uh, we'll get back to that. <laughs> let's jump into sponsor. Sponsor this week is Collide again. So let's, uh, let's have a quick chat about Collide. Got Linux and Mac and Windows and iOS and Android, which is all of them. Then Collide has a device trust solution for you. Click here to watch the demo. Now, Collide has been a massive sponsor uh, last year, previous years, into this year, for quite some time to come as well. Go and check out the demo in this challenge. Well, the challenge is rather than implementing device trust with Okta, how Collide integrates with Okta to keep untrusted devices from accessing your company's apps. Lots of stuff around trust these days. And how end-user remediation removes the IT bottleneck that often derails zero trust initiatives. Uh, please go and check out Collide. They've been a, a fantastic sponsor. And having sponsors like Collide helps me sit here and process data breaches, write long blog posts, Go and get ChatGPT to generate hero images. It seems to be the way these days. All right. A few other little uh, little housekeeping things, upcoming things, just before I jump into the meaty bits. Um, NDC Sydney. NDC Sydney is next week. If you're in Sydney, we will be back at the Hilton Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I think, when am I talking? I think I'm talking. It's Oh, wow. Do I not have NDC Sydney on my on my schedule here? Well, on the schedule on my website, I'm definitely going. I have the tickets. Everything is booked. Let's just go to the website. NDC Sydney. I think it's Wednesday, Arvo. I'm going to fly down Wednesday morning uh, agenda. What am I talking about? <laughs> I'm going to be talking about the same stuff as I did at NDC Security in Oslo last month. Uh, it is a... Mostly new talk. Oh crap, they haven't moved my thing, have they? Or maybe it's the next day I'm speaking. When I'm speaking, speakers. <laughs> I should work this stuff out. And of course, then we've got NDC Oslo, the big one coming up in June as well. Troy Hunt, security researcher. Talk 60 minutes. It is Wednesday, three until four o'clock. Okay, cool. Right, so we're all clear on this now. Wednesday, three to four o'clock, how I met your data is the talk. Now, you know how I mentioned the ChatGPT thing? Can't remember if I said on this video, blogger, whatever it is I do each week, thing before. (laughs) But uh, you've always got to come up with like a title and abstract for every single talk. And I've done hundreds and hundreds of them and they get I get very bored with coming up with titles and abstracts because usually my talks all end up having similar things, experiences with data breaches, so on and so forth. And if I'm honest, I make a lot of it up very, very close before the event because I just find that's the most interesting way of doing it it's a bit more casual. And uh, NDC folks asked me for the title and abstract for this talk not long before NDC security. Uh, it was a busy time. It's a busy time. Anyways, it was a busy time. Anyways, it's a busy time. So I literally went to ChatGPT and I was like, generate a talk about this. Now, here's what I came up with. I did tweak the title a little bit. But anyway, we ended up with How I Met Your Data, which I thought was a pretty good title. Here's the description. This talk will take you on a rollercoaster ride through my experiences processing data breaches from the initial shock and chaos, talk about that in a moment, to the intricate dealings with cybercriminal, anxious companies, and the ever-watchful FBI. Blending humour with hard-earned insights. I'll share the good, the bad, and the downright bizarre. Offering a unique perspective on what it truly means to be at the intersection of cybersecurity, crime, and law enforcement. Prepare for a session filled with unexpected lessons, quirky anecdotes, and practical wisdom for navigating the murky waters of digital security. How's that? That's a great generated talk title. Abstract, I love this. Nick007 is from a pub in London. Having a stone and wood, which is an Aussie beer. There you go. All snowy northern England. Oh, it's different here. Every day at the moment, we've been 31 degrees. Actually, it's only getting to 27 today. What is wrong with this? It's a bit overcast today. It's been raining too much. I'm acutely conscious of the rain because I've been playing tennis every single day, sometimes twice a day, and we keep dodging the rain. Very northern England rain, but warm. Eddie, always nice to see stream. Lots of love from Kenya. Awesome. I have been to Kenya. Once, long time ago. Only time I've ever been to Africa. I need to go back. And morning to Ben as well. Now, just on this NDC Sydney thing, this is going to be the same talk I did in Oslo. Leading up to this talk, I was convinced I was going to get in trouble. (laughs) There are multiple things in there. I was like, this is, there's going to be a complaint. There will be a complaint. Not a reasonable complaint, I don't think most of the complaints I've had about talks are reasonable, but someone will be upset because of the nature of some of the data breaches I talk about. And a lot of this is just like picking the most interesting data breaches and some of the anecdotes and feedbacks and things from those. Uh, Now, I didn't get any negative feedback. In fact, got really, really positive feedback. At the NDC events, we get rating cards. And I guess not everyone in the audience puts a card in, but let's say half the audience puts a card in. And I came out with 160 green cards, which is everyone's happy. Two yellow cards, so two, eh, and zero red cards. So empirically, it was actually a really good talk. So I'm going to do exactly the same thing in Sydney. Now, also in Sydney, I'm going to be doing the Azure Sydney User Group. And it's going to be at the Microsoft Reactor. And I think that, when am I doing that? So that's just after the other one. I saw the meetup today. Now it's the day after, isn't it? Uh respond by yes, that is going to be on the Thursday. So it's going to be Thursday at 5 45. Um another AI generated title, Cloud Enhanced Cybersecurity Tales from the Dark Web. What am I talking about? What are sales going to talk about? Uh first up, we have internationally known security expert Troy Hunt who will deliver his talk, Cloud Enhanced Cybersecurity Tales from the Dark Web which offers a concise exploration, I've only got half an hour, of handling data breaches, blending humor with essential cybersecurity lessons. Troy will touch on dealing with hackers, corporate concerns, and law enforcement, highlighting Microsoft Azure's cloud capabilities in navigating these challenges. It's the Azure user group. I didn't say that disparagingly, but there should be some Azure stuff in there. Expect a mix of unique anecdotes and practical advice in digital security. Don't miss out to hear from one of the best presenters around and get your questions answered. I'm very tempted to make this one of the most casual talks ever and not even prepare. And (laughs) I think you just get there and go, okay, cool. So what do you want to talk about? I will prepare some stuff, but it's going to be very, very casual. It is a user group. User groups are a lot more intimate. They're a lot more, more, I don't know, less prepared. They're good fun. Uh, So... If you're at NDC, please come along to do that. Uh, otherwise, if you're in Sydney, at least come along to the user group. I know NDC uh, is, is a cost. The user group is free. we Will be different stuff, though. Shorter talk. I don't know what we're going to do yet. We'll figure that out before we get there. Oh. Brian, good to catch your update live again. Just an American bogan <laughs> adjacent hooning about. Okay, that sounds fun. All right, boy. Where do we start with this one? Spoutable. Let's talk about Spoutable. Uh, there are many layers, <laughs> many layers to this. Let's let's go back to before I got the email last week about Spoutable. Uh, I I have a you know Spoutable is just one of those names. Where so I've heard this somewhere before, but I don't remember why. Was it an integration platform was it a e-commerce like I, I don't know I just heard the name before uh, and, and then a little bit of reading uh, and I, I realized it was a social media or is still a social media platform it came along in the wake of the uh, the great Twitter exodus uh, following Elon's arrival people are still pissed about that too some people are pissed about it I still have lots of engagement there anyway whatever so people uh, headed off to places like Mastodon, Blue Sky, I think Threads has got some people on it, and then of course uh, there was Spoutable as well. Now I I have a Blue Sky profile, a Threads profile, a Mastodon profile, I have a foothold there, I put some stuff on Mastodon, I look at the mentions every now and then for for whatever reason Spoutable just, maybe it just wasn't my circles getting particularly involved in it, so I didn't have a profile there. Uh, which is fine. Uh, it's, it's run uh, by a guy called Christopher Boozy, and This was just another one of those things. I know I've heard this name somewhere. I know I've heard it somewhere. And I just couldn't remember where. I couldn't remember if it was like some controversy or something on the internet. I had a feeling it was something like that, but nothing that had attracted enough attention to really have a recollection of it. Now, I later realised what it was, and it was around controversy and previous security incidents that people had raised with the platform and in particular his responses to them. Now, if this is not familiar to you... (laughs) After this video, after the podcast and everything, you just go and have a Google and form your own opinions. And this is usually what I do when I'm looking into a data breach and trying to figure out you know, who's behind this, how do I disclose this. I just do Googling and I read the things I find on the social platforms from the masses and you and you quickly form your own opinion. Paul's here from the Sunshine Coast. Is it sunny on the Sunshine Coast today or is it like here? Because at the moment it's still raining outside my window. That are. Glad to catch you live. Been loving all your activity on Twitter. Still there, still tweeting, Xing, whatever. Uh, Gaming with Kui. Quay. Quay, Hi Troy. Love your stream. Quick question. How old were you when you started learning how to code? Um my LinkedIn uh LinkedIn, my Wikipedia profile has a guess at my birth year. Uh, and I think it guesses 76 or 77, and one of them is right. <laughs> I'm dating myself. I'm in the second half of my 40s now. Um, so I didn't really get... I got, first got a PC, I think it must have been 1988. Uh, so I wouldn't have quite been a teenager yet at the time. And I think the first time I started to code... is. I don't want to get off topic from this battle... <laughs> And I do like answering the questions too. Would have been we moved to the Netherlands when I was nearly 14 uh, and it's cold and rainy there. And I spent a lot of time sitting inside and I started doing basic when I was, let's say, when I was about 14. Really didn't do much for it. And I'd say I really didn't start to code properly until I was uh, probably 18 and I started, started doing the web. That was very exciting. Anyway, another topic. Mike's here as well. Good to catch you live. Thank you, Mike. Back on Spoutable. So I have literally an inbox full of emails from people disclosing various data breaches, vulnerabilities, things like this. I get these every single day without fail. Someone sends me something related to a vulnerability or a breach or a disclosure or something like that. So I got this one about Spoutable the other day. Uh, And I I have a feeling this was about Thursday last week. There-ish. And... I I sort of I glanced at it and my initial reaction was someone has uh, found a way to scrape data that is intended to be publicly facing from a service and I I think I went to that place straight away because we've seen this happen so often uh, even very recently I mean the Trello data that went in only a couple of weeks ago I think that was what 15 million records or something was just that it was a scraped public API And then we have this whole discussion about should you be able to scrape a public API or not? You know, Does it matter? Is it a breach? Yada, yada, yada. And I went, okay. And then I looked at the API that the person had sent me and it's the usual sort of, here is a URL and it has an innumerable piece of data at the end of it. In the the case of Spoutable, it was a username. And I went there and I looked at what came back And that, (laughs) I don't know where to begin on this because I've honestly, I've never seen this. I've seen a lot of data breaches. I've seen literally thousands of data breaches. I mean, I've put 700 plus into Have I Been Pwned and a lot of the ones I've looked at have not gone in there because they're too small or they're not real or various other reasons. Thousands of data breaches. I don't think I've ever seen an API that returns as much data that shouldn't be returned as the spoutable one. And I I started reading through it, and I was like, this can't can't be right. Uh, This must not be what it actually looks like. And then I'd go and validate it, and I was like, holy shit, this is what it looks like. Brian says, "Uh, it's a pity Elon had to rename Twitter after one of his kids. I still don't get that. Anyway, back on spoutable. So... (laughs) What I tend to do when I'm trying to do any data breach validation or vulnerability validation is, in fact, this ended up being two things. It ended up being a vulnerability disclosure and a data breach disclosure because the person that sent me the email about the vulnerability also sent 207,000 records that they'd scraped, which had a lot of information. So I was a bit of a double whammy here. You know, I can't change what's in the breach but in order to do the verification I can go and set up an account on the service and with my own account so that I'm not violating anyone else's privacy unnecessarily I can go through and I can validate whether this is correct or not. So I create an account I'm still on Spoutable. my username is Troy Hunt that bit is meant to be public. Now every single one of these social media platforms has some sort of a construct of a user profile often seen in a web page. Uh, the web page is often calling APIs asynchronously, the API is often taking the username of the user and it will return it either to authenticated or unauthenticated users. Either way, it's returning a bunch of profile data. And if you go and you have a look at all the network requests in your browser for Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, any of the other things, you'll see exactly the same stuff. So that the question is not whether you should be able to enumerate an API and passing usernames and get data back. The question, at least in this context, is more about what data should you get back. Now, I started with the easy stuff. And incidentally, I titled this blog post how Spoutable's leaky API spurted out a deluge of personal data. 100% accurate, (laughs) okay? It was a leaky API. I think, let's define spurted. Because there has been some criticism of the title of the blog post. Only from one person, as far as I know. But uh, let's let's come back to that. Define spurted. Uh, let's do the safe for work versions of this. Uh, he cut his finger and blood spurted over the sliced potatoes. Gush out in a sudden and forceful stream. Well, if, if you make 207,000 requests, it does kind of spurt. Move with a sudden burst of speed. Well, it's definitely not that. More definitions... What does spurted up? Uh, let's just stop there. Deluge of personal data, and look. I mean, I know these words, right? But I just find sometimes when people say that title is sensationalist. Uh, uh, a deluge, a severe flood. How much data do you have to have before it's a deluge? Is two hundred seven thousand records a day? know, that doesn't matter. Everyone gets the idea. Uh, the personal data bit—no debating that. And come back to that more. Paul's uh, Overcast and showery. Was that the Sunshine? Yeah, Sunshine Coast. Yeah, that's a shame. Uh, the MV Junior's in Brazil. Ali says it's a torrent. Could have been a torrent. The only thing is torrent then becomes ambiguous with like peer-to-peer torrenting, so I didn't want to use that word. Mike says a day should be enough data to drown in it. Brian says over 640,000. That's a very round, binary-based number, isn't it? Anyway, so the API comes back, has an error code of zero, a status of 200. Why do you need a status of 200 literally as a JSON attribute when that's in the response code of the... Anyway, <laughs> an ID, a username, a first name and a last name, doesn't. it's not immediately clear to me whether that should always be returned because it. one of the things for us to understand with all these breaches is what information did the person creating the account reasonably expect to be disclosed now there are cases where you don't want your real name disclosed you want your shooter name or you want your username or something like that not entirely sure here I certainly can't criticize them for that the about section so the about that appears on my profile that's returned the API no problems whatsoever and then we get down to the bits where it all starts to go wrong and the way I wrote this blog post, because I like to try and make the blog post as entertaining to, to read as possible amongst all the serious stuff, is, is I said it was a little bit like hearing one of those stories and then you see something and you're like, oh wow. And then you get further and so, like, oh wow. And then you get further and so, like, oh. So the next thing, was us to the first oh wow. There are four fields here which should not have been returned publicly, but are not that abnormal to other scraping incidents. The email address so we've seen lots of incidents such as Trello where being able to pass a, uh, a, a an innumerable value and in the Trello case you could pass an email address to an API it would come back and give you all the other data hence disclosing the API link to the identities now that's that shouldn't happen that's still a bad thing <laughs> Trello shouldn't do that but you know we've discussed that already the user's IP address now this is The IP address of their machine that they signed up from I know that because when I set up my profile and then I looked at the information disclosed it was my outbound IP that is personal uh, personally identifiable as well Uh, yes you could have multiple people in your house but there's a reasonable a reasonable high level of confidence that you can identify a person in a household based on the IP combined with other attributes as well Now, one of the reasons why this is a little bit sensitive is it starts to tie together your traffic and your movements over multiple services. Uh, You might want to use another service anonymously, but if they store your IP as well and you're not using a VPN, then you've got matching elements. So IP address, particularly if you have enough data, it was only last week we're talking about the shady service that started with Leak that had a massive volume of data, you can start to piece people's movements together across different services even if they've done everything else to remain anonymous on that service it is not by strict definition sensitive personal information that's when we get to everything from health to religious affiliations uh, to credit cards and things like that but it is personal phone if you added your phone which was optional i put mine in there in order to test this that was disclosed as well and your gender now Again, look, gender, for me, it, it doesn't matter. There's no surprises there. But for other people, that's information that very often they do want to keep private. Um, sexuality is another one of those uh, sensitive personal information fields, and gender is obviously closely related to that. Information that seem to have no good reason to be returned publicly. And then as we go down here, we've got, screen grabs of where I put in my email address, my phone number, my gender, and there's absolutely nothing in here that sets an expectation to me that it would be available to other people. You know how there's a bunch of social media profiles, even Twitter, keep calling it Twitter, (laughs) you go in there and you can put your birthday in and then you can choose, do you want to make it public, do you just want to make the year public, like you control the privacy of your account. There was no indication whatsoever here that this was meant to be public. Now, keeping in mind, at this point in time, I'm trying to figure out, was this deliberate or not? You know, is this a deliberate coding thing or is this a mistake? Uh, (laughs) Brian Hobbs says, Bill Gates backs him up on 640K, 640K Bill Gates obviously being the reference to nobody will ever need more than 640K of memory. Uh, Mike says, PII isn't always one thing like social security number, it can be a combination of multiple attributes that be assembled to piece it together. Brian keeps his pronouns encrypted. <laughs> Doesn't that only work, though, if you show them to other people? Anyway, let's move on. Now, the, <laughs> the one that that really started to make me scratch my head was... there's a field in the JSON called password and it has a bcrypt hash in it. Now, this is the one where when I saw it, I was like, I have seen cases in the past where people have hashed data attributes for strange reasons. Reasons that weren't immediately evident to me. You know, why would you hash that? So when I saw this, I was like, This is not going to actually be the... You'd never return someone's actual password in a response. Like, why would you ever do that? And then I took the bcrypt hash, and I went over to a bcrypt hash verifier, and I'm going to talk after this more about just understanding hashes in general because this is where part of the FUD has come out after the breach disclosure. And I checked my spoutable password, which was spoutable all lowercase because they let you have that they don't anymore we'll come back to that as well and it matched so the plain text spoutable was the input that created the hash that was returned by the API in other words if we had picked all 207,000 hashes and had a all lowercase plain text password of spoutable and tested each one of those hashes some of them will be spoutable we'll come back to it so it was the actual user's password returned as a bcrypt hash to randos browsing the API. (laughs) That is... I put a tangential story in here, and it's a true story. And I'm going to embellish on it a little bit more now because it was one of my favourite stories to tell during my 14 eventually very painful years (laughs) at Pfizer. Now, I started working at Pfizer in 2001 and I didn't know who Pfizer was when I started then. Uh, And most of you probably didn't know who Pfizer was until COVID and vaccines and things like this. And I always used to say, yeah, Pfizer, like we make Viagra. (laughs) Like this is, I'm just there, yeah, making Viagra. Pfizer also made. Lipitor is the world's largest selling drugs. Zoloft, very well known antidepressant. Uh, it's, it was, I think, the sixth largest company in the world when I started working there. But it's their brands that are very well known as compared to the actual company itself. Uh, and eventually there, by the end of it, I looked after our application architecture for all of Asia Pacific. So every time we build applications... I'd have some input on that, and it could be anything from a Viagra marketing website through to a clinical trials application to, to manage the, the testing of products uh, uh, during the trials procedure process through to adverse event reporting. Uh, I I won't make Viagra jokes. <laughs> I took one of your products and I had a rash. That's an adverse event. It has to be reported and logged so that they can hopefully have less people getting rashes. Now, they had this massive outsourcing drive during the time I was there because developers people like me until I did the architecture thing were expensive and they were a cost and we should get rid of that and we should push it out to the cheapest possible markets uh, and pretty much everything that we did in the Asia Pac region including a lot of stuff in Australia went to India China or the Philippines and on one occasion <laughs> I remember it so clearly this uh, this low-cost vendor in China had built an iOS app, and every time I got these apps, I did take some pleasure in pulling them apart. Plus it was my job as well. <laughs> it wasn't like wasn't like let's just go and screw with yeah, cheap developers. Uh, we actually had to go and review these things, make sure they're okay. and I proxied the app through Fiddler and I actually found an API that was your, your classic uh, web service definition language kind of WSDL implementation where you could actually go there and see the definition of the other endpoints and one of the endpoints was an API called get all users and it did return all users in the system including their plain text passwords that is the only time in my decades of doing this that I have seen an API by design return everyone's passwords hashed or otherwise that's the only time. So th- this is like pretty much unprecedented. Oh. <laughs> Ali said always salt your passwords folks, preserve them safely." I, th- I think there's a tongue in cheek thing there, but we are gonna talk more about salts and things a moment. Now, one of the, the problems in this whole password ecosystem, a- along with encryption versus hashing versus bcrypt versus salt versus all this other stuff is how strong are the passwords now there's a whole other discussion i've had so many times before about uh the insanity of arbitrary password complexity criteria why we need to follow this advice and look for passwords from previous breach corpuses there's pwned passwords out there i think we're doing about eight and a half billion requests a month at the moment checking passwords from systems like spoutable who could use this for free it's there such that when someone creates a password, it checks pwned passwords to see if it's been in a previous data breach, and then regardless of how many uppercases and lower cases and things it's got, a bad password is one that's been seen before. Regardless, the only criteria here was that it had to have six characters. So not only could you have spoutable all our cases of password, but you could have abc123. That significantly weakened the situation. And again, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But what if you had two-factor? Because if you have two-factor and someone guesses your password, you're okay. <laughs> in the JSON, there were three fields that started with 2FA. One of them says 2FA secret. And again, I'm looking at this going, no, no, you, you can't. Surely, no. Is it that? One of them says 2FA enabled at and there's a date stamp there. And one of them says 2FA backup code and it's another bcrypt hash. So the obvious first step was to see if the 2FA secret was genuinely the 2FA secret used to generate the OTP, the one-time password, the little six-digit thing that goes around and around and around. Now, this 2FA secret is needed on the client device that has the authenticator app such that it can generate the code and then you get the code and it's submitted to the website and the website also generates what the code should be based on that secret at that particular point in time. And if they match, you're good to go, second factor passes. I give my 2FA secret to Stefan, our part-time have I been pwned code monkey (laughs) and he generates the correct six digit code. So he's got the secret. That is the actual secret you used to generate the code. So if someone guessed your password, it didn't matter that you had 2FA if they had access to the secret. <laughs> I've just never seen it before. And then it got even worse. I don't know if it's even worse, because by now you're just totally hosed anyway. Um, <laughs> The 2FA backup code is exactly what it sounds like. Because you know how when you turn 2FA on on any web application, and it's like, look, you've turned it on, uh, just in case you lose your your secret, which, which usually looks like, uh, you know, you've installed Google Authenticator. This was before they could sync it and back it up. You've got another phone. You no longer have your Authenticator code. If you have your backup code, your backup code can bypass that 2FA. Now, when I set 2FA up, I screen capped the backup code is a six-digit number. So it's a six-digit number is very weak. There are one million of them. That's it. Normally, your backup codes... I'm going to have a look at my backup codes. I'm not going to read it out for the other services, but I, uh, I always keep my backup codes in my password manager where they're safe. Uh, let's just search for backup. Uh, I'll pick... Yeah, so I'm picking – I'm not even going to name the platforms, but this one's got one It uh, uh, looks like about 12 uh, alphanumeric characters, so massively different character space to just one million of them. That's another one over here. This one has got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pairs of four alphanumeric characters. So what's that? That's 32 characters uh, with, it looks like it's not case-sensitive, so you've got uh, 36 different parts. Po- oh, you can do the math. It's a big number. So that's what a backup code normally looks like. A backup code shouldn't be six digits at any time. If it is six digits and you bcrypt it, it's not going to do anything for you. And the reason it's not going to do anything for you is because you can make one million guesses at a bcrypt hash very very quickly in fact i want to see how quickly so i tweeted i tweeted out my bcrypt value of the six digit backup code and i said i have a little challenge for you all below is the bcrypt hash for six digit number who can work out that number and how long did it take now the tweet i embedded had the right code took them two minutes and 59 seconds other people did it faster. It, of course, it would depend on how you're enumerating through the number. So, if you're just doing it literally from zero through to nine 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 nine, then my number, which was uh, five hundred seventy thousand and seventy five, would be just over halfway through that process. Um, question of how your hash cracking software choice, of course, most people are using Hashcat. Question of how it goes through that potential character range. Mike says, write these down and show this to nobody. But if you forget your career API, if you forget your six-digit code, get it from the API. Uh. <laughs> Brian says, I got stuck on the site clicking on I'm not a robot. It rejects me more than my wife. Oh, boy. Shut up. Uh. <laughs> not not you, me. <laughs> Don't say it. Uh, I assume, Brian, you're talking about Spoutable. I'm, I'm curious. You're trying to say it's to Spoutable uh, and you're not getting past the anti-automation because we'll go and read some, some Spouts later on. Spouts are Spoutable's tweets. Um, <laughs> Rob says, we'll get them from the reflection in your eyeballs. Good luck with that. <laughs> okay, so 2FA was completely invalidated because of all the data returned. Now, if you think about what that means just based on the information we had so far, you could potentially crack the bcrypt hash. Again, we're gonna talk about hashing more broadly in just a moment. You could potentially crack that, particularly due to the very weak password requirements. And then if 2FA was turned on, you could easily circumvent that with 100% certainty because you had both the secret and you had the backup code. So the adversary perspective, the bottleneck here was being able to crack bcrypt, which in many cases, it's not going to be too hard. However, he didn't have to do that to get into someone's account because there was another field returned called em underscore code. Now, this looks like an MD5 hash. 32 bytes of hexadecimal characters. And when I first saw it, maybe it's because I've been around too many data breaches for too long, but something in me just went... This is gonna be the password reset code. That's gonna be the first thing I try. So, <laughs> I went to the password reset. I'm now not authenticated. So I'm, I'm hacking myself. Uh, incognito window, not authenticated, go to spoutable, password reset, put my email address in, website comes back. Uh, please check your email inbox. Mail, we sent you an email. And I just realized this is grammatically terrible please check your email inbox. Mail, we sent you an email. Just to go off on a tangent for a second and, and based on some of the things other people have said as well, I have seen speculation about this being a little bit similar to the situation with Pfizer where development gets outsourced to a low-cost, probably non-native English market. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing But anecdotally, (laughs) anecdotally, that does seem to introduce some things you you tend not to see when you pay a bit more money locally. Anecdotally. What's the rest of this say? Uh, We have sent you an email to reset your password. Please follow the instructions in the email to reset your password. Okay, a bit double up, but yeah, all right, that's not too bad. Um, And then under that is an OK button. And then under that, it says, remembered your password, log in. So just in case you did the reset, but somewhere between doing the reset and then reading down to here, you remembered it. You can, Anyway, so password reset email comes. Uh, and it's just as you expect, you know, password reset. Uh, here is a link to reset my password. And then the URL is, yeah, spoutable.com. And there's an EM code in a query string parameter, and it is exactly the code from the database. And you click on the link. And you go to the website and you set a new password. And then this is what the password criteria said. To update your password, enter a new one below. Your password must be at least six characters. Use uppercase and lowercase letters, numbers, special characters, for example, but then there's no enforcement of that. Well, there wasn't before. So every single user of the system had immediate account takeover potential because the password reset token was in the email, or rather was in the, the public API. That is nuts. So I forget about cracking B crypto, like none of that was necessary because you already had the reset code. I did this on my own account. I did not do it on another account. It would have been an epic demonstration. And I'm gonna talk about why some people do this in a moment, but I did not do this, wasn't necessary anyway. But that and the thing is is that once I did reset my password, I didn't get any notification to my email. So I theoretically, and again I didn't do this, but theoretically I could have gone through and just started changing everyone's password to whatever I wanted it to be, and they would not have been notified. The first they would have known about it is they wouldn't have been able to log in. Now they could have done a password reset. And I could have just reset it again, right? This is what the attacker could do. Not only did they not get notified about it, and and if if you're sort of wondering, like, what do I mean? Go and change your password on any major social media platform, uh, most e-commerce platforms I can think of, pretty much anywhere, and you'll get an email saying, hey, you've just changed your password. And the reason they do that is for precisely this sort of situation, where what if an attacker gains the ability to reset your password? So for example, maybe they got your old shitty password to begin with, they logged onto your account and then they changed it to another one. We're going to send an email to the legitimate account holder just so they know. There's also nowhere in Spoutable where you can see the active sessions. So you can't see that I'm currently logged on from all these places. You also can't log them out and changing your password doesn't log them out. So if someone had taken over someone's Spoutable account using the code then the victim wouldn't be notified about it, couldn't see that it had happened, and couldn't stop it from happening. So what does that leave you with in terms of a platform operator? Like, how do you recover from that before we talk about the other things? Several things. Invalidate all the codes, and they did that. You also have to invalidate all the sessions. You have to log out every single session. You also have to change every single password because 207,000 of them have been disclosed. That you know of. It's just 207,000 got sent to me, and I did send them the data as well, so they know exactly which of the accounts are in the 207,000, but that doesn't mean that all of these other places where the password was returned publicly, someone hasn't saved that password or logged in with that reset code. You, you you have to wipe all of those passwords and then you have to wipe all of the 2FA secrets as well so everyone that set up 2FA you have to get rid of all of that and redo all of the 2FA because you can't use those secrets anymore because they're public (laughs) and then the really the really crazy thing like I'm wondering how was this found in the first place and then It turns out that the way it's found is that there's a pods feature, which appears to be uh, like live stream stuff. I guess a little bit like this, just audios as best I understand it. And when you go there and you see someone's profile and you click on the profile and it shows a little model pops up with their profile details. In order to populate that model, it makes an API call and that's the API it calls. And not only that, but when you load a list of pods and it shows the people that are currently broadcasting pods, that list doesn't just include a list of the pods, but there is an entity there, which is the user. And for that user, all of that data is included again. The email address, the phone number, the bcrypt hash, the 2FA stuff, the EM code to reset the password. So just by using the website as it's intended to be used, people browsing around were being sent all of this personal data of other people. Now, you only see it if you look at the dev tools, but what it meant is that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't even know how many people received the data of other people and it sat there on their machines. Their names, their genders, their email addresses, hashes, all of that. So, So, you know, when I say deluge... And spurted I think that's pretty reasonable and the really crazy thing is is that they have no way of knowing just how many people received all of that data of other people and actually saw it and possibly did something with it because if you just use the website to browse around and look at people's profiles and that behavior is indistinguishable from someone just literally saving Saving their PCAPs and looking at the data later on, you know? And, then, and that's what's kind of so wild about it. Uh, <laughs> let me look at the comments here. <laughs> Ali says, might be the same team in China that did the, the offshore. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Uh, Brian, created a help class for an app with a header, and two weeks later, that was 11 overloads. 11. Uh, okay. Ally says, "The good thing is, if someone steals your account, you can just steal it back." <laughs> uh, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit back and forth, isn't it? Um, Marek says, "I assume this magic reset key is perpetual." No, it's not perpetual. So it changes on each reset, and then that's just exposed in the API again. So it's persistent in that it is generated and it remains there until you do a password reset with it and then it rotates it. Now, I, I wonder if that was done in order to avoid the risk of someone retaining an email with the password reset link. Which is, if you retain an email with the password reset and the password reset link is perpetual, then it is effectively saving a password in your email. The thing is, though is you could request a password reset and not click the link and it would still be valid because, of course, it doesn't change that EM code on the request, it changes it after you click the link and you set a new password. So one of the the shortcomings here is that when you do a password reset, you should be getting a token which is valid for, you know, let's call it half an hour or something like that. So a time-limited single-use token. It's a single-use token, but it was perpetual until used. Mike says, this was some of the stuff I was trying to point out to them on Spoutable when Boozy nuked my post account. Can you just explain what you mean by that, Mike? Because uh, I think it's probably relevant for other people. Now, Human Octopus here says, Battle is a $50 project. The EM code is SHA1. Was it SHA1? Was it 40 characters? Or was it 32? I mean, not that it matters anyway, because at this point it's like, uh, I do like to get the facts correct here. Let's copy that. Let's drop it into a text editor so we can count the length um yep there you go it's 40 characters so that is sha1 uh look it could be sha256 and it would still be absolute crap because it is a string that you can copy and paste into url right so all this data has been returned publicly now (laughs) i saw all of this and i'm sort of validating this dropping it into a blog post uh, at the time and I'm thinking how do I how do I disclose this security.txt file there's nice no security.txt file uh, contact details on the site now I didn't see any contact details on the site but I did later find that there is I think it's help.spellable.com it looks to be uh, looks to be Zendesk support system which is fine we do the same thing for have been paying. and then as I'm reading around I see more information about Christopher Boozy. And I'll I'll, I'll be as objective as I can about this because I think it's just really interesting to go and search yourself and form your own opinions on this. But Spoutable had just passed one year. uh, It's one year anniversary. It was a a year old. Uh, As I'm searching around, it looks like there had been prior incidents, uh, not of this severity, but I got the impression that... uh, the incidents were not well received <laughs> when reported. So that that doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Now this is again, before I've, I've contacted Christopher, I I saw a lot of defensiveness around other issues. I saw a lot of people complaining that they felt their issues weren't taken seriously, which is also part of the reason I wanted to document all of this so clearly, because it's, it's very hard to argue against data. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of data in the blog post. So eventually, I uh, I found, uh, ironically, he, he's quite active on Twitter. So I reached out to him on Twitter. Um, I reached him via email because it was easier to find his email. And I want to make it you know, really clear, just despite the, what I'd sort of seen publicly before that, uh, he was great. Uh, Christopher was really good in that I got a very, very quick response from him, I didn't expect it to be that quick. I'd gone out for some drinks with friends. (laughs) I was just getting all of these messages. So I managed to get him all of the information very, very quickly. i got a disclosure timeline in here. This was uh, 3.30, I think it was my Sunday, yeah, Sunday Arvo. So 3.30 Sunday Arvo, initial outreach. I'm over having some beers, relaxing. Um, I got a response from them just under two hours later. Uh, I gave them all of the details about an hour later. Uh And then about an hour after that, the whole thing was fixed. So we went three hours and 18 minutes maximum, four hours and 18 minutes maximum, from me reaching out to having the API fixed. Now, that's fantastic. And they deserve all the credit in the world for responding so quickly. In a way, like there's some periphery issues around this one core bug, and and the periphery issues are things like you know, short weak passwords, uh, none of ability to log out other sessions, not getting notifications when you change your email. If you take away the periphery issues, there, there was really one bug, which was excessive attributes on on user profiles being returned publicly. So so think about it as one bug. Yes, it exposed different things that had different risks because they could be exploited in different ways, but it was really one bug. So. Fixing that one bug, I would imagine was not a big effort, particularly because it happened so quickly. If I was to guess, there's a framework being used somewhere that is picking up an entire entity from the data tier and persisting it through to the UI. Now, we've seen lots of frameworks like this in the past. Uh, and if you remember, we used to have things like mass assignment attacks not that many years ago, where you could post an entity back to an API endpoint. And if you included other attributes about the entity, which may not have been exposed publicly, but you could guess or knew existed in the underlying data tier, you could do things like you know, fixate the password on there. A little bit like that, where you've got frameworks trying to do all of the, the glue to make it easier for you as a developer. And I would imagine someone has gone through and just turned that off or rotated it to some other implementation that only explicitly selected fields. Uh, i did make an note in here it looks like something changed encoding wise i got a diff before and after and there were like ford slashes that previously were escaped and then weren't or vice versa so i think something changed a little bit in the encoding but they chopped out more than 80 percent of the response of that api and chopped it down to just the most important stuff so i i want to make sure credit's given where it's due they did a great job of that bit <laughs> let me read the the comments here uh Mike so I was going over a few of these specifics, trying to point them out. The hashes, the severity of it, take up potential, etc. Ava Chow, were all the Bcrypt hashes unsalted? Bcrypt is always salted. I'm going to talk more about Bcrypt in a moment. Uh, so no, they were not unsalted. They were all salted, which every modern adaptive hashing algorithm, uh, whether it's Argon or PBKDF2 or any of these sort of things, Bcrypt, all do. Mike says, when Boozy reputed me, said I was gaslighting everyone. Human octopus. b sold soldered usually. There we go. Mike, then he got upset and nuked my posts. Uh, Mike, I was even complaining or even complimenting him on his response time. But he wasn't having anything outside this was an attack on us. Which seems like a natural point to pivot to the response. Now, I put out a tweet thread just before I started this live stream about the epiphany that I had in 2017. So I got invited to speak at Congress in America. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So like they got in touch. They're like, hey, would you come to Congress and talk about data breach? It's like, you know, I'm Australian, don't you? And they're like, eh, no, it'd be fun. It'd be fun. And it was. It was an amazing experience. So I got to go over there in 2017 and testify before Congress about the impact of data breaches on knowledge-based authentication. And I was putting a lot of thought into this testimony and as I was driving to the airport, I was hearing news about the Uber incident from the year before where Uber had had, (laughs) really they'd had a data breach that they tried to pass off as a bug bounty by paying off the attackers. Now, later on their CTO got into all sorts of trouble for uh, what's the right legal term, Um, messing up the investigation. (laughs) That's not the right legal term. You'll find it, people know what I mean. Uh, And he obviously did some pretty stupid things. But the the point was Uber was starting to get raked over the coals for this response, where they'd had an incident. It was shitty. They tried to cover it up. They tried to downplay it. They tried to deflect the severity of it. And people got very upset with them. This was around about the same time as Equifax as well. People were very upset about that. And it wasn't that long after the Australian Red Cross Blood Service, where someone had found a database backup of their production system with about half a million people in it, including me, because when you donate blood, you go into this list. And they'd sent me the data and I had to disclose it to the the Red Cross. And they did a fantastic job of handling it. And I wrote a blog post about it later on, Data Breach Disclosure 101, How to Succeed After You Failed. And it picked up on so many of the things that the Australian Red Cross had done. And one of the the things I really liked about it is their, their CEO... I, th- I think I disclosed it on a Tuesday morning, and by Friday afternoon, uh, not only had they obviously closed the vulnerability, uh, reached out to everyone via emails and SMS, the CEO was out there doing press releases, uh, doing a doing a conference a press conference communicating with the press, and she felt terrible. she took full responsibility in fact it is it's been in that blog post. But part of the video was, we take full responsibility for this. We are sorry. We've let you down. And I didn't put it in the thread, but I should have. I feel it's a little bit like, for those of you that have kids, you know, when you when your kids do something wrong, they've screwed something up, you know. Now, maybe they didn't mean to, but they've screwed it up. You go, mate, look, just at least say you're sorry. You know, I want to know that you feel bad for what you did and you apologize for it and you won't do it again. It feels like talking to your children in terms of how to handle a data breach. But this is what gives people confidence in the sincerity and the authenticity of the organization. Uh, now, in that blog post, I also talk about a lot of stuff around transparency, uh, about owning the problems, about not trying to play stuff down, and a whole bunch of other things that really just feel like common sense. Now, we don't always see this happen, and I don't think this is the case in the spoutable situation, but where I've seen it not happen, particularly with big organizations, I can think of a One incident in particular, I can't name, but a very close friend of mine worked in this organisation and was in there during the discussions about how to disclose this, and the disclosure took very long, and we were having some pretty candid chats A very, very close around us. I said, wait, what's going on? He's like, just a table full of lawyers all trying to figure out how to spin it. So very often lawyers will get involved, and they'll say, you know, look, we can't for example, acknowledge responsibility because when we get hit with class actions and everything later on, it's just going to make things so much worse because we've acknowledged fault. I'm quite sure that's not the case here. I don't think it's an organisation of that size and I don't think it's lawyers setting the narrative. I think it's Christopher. So let's look at the disclosure notice through that lens. This morning, we are alerted by Troy Hunt, a respected figure in the cybersecurity... <laughs> I don't know if he's still... Believe that now, but regardless, in the cybersecurity industry, about a vulnerability within our systems that was uh, in a system that was inadvertently introduced in a recent update. An unnamed individual exploited the vulnerability to scrape limited personal data from our from our users, and then someone contacted Mr. Hunt. Sounds like my father, but he means me. Importantly, this vulnerability did not involve direct access to our databases. Now. Is it that important if the data in the database was returned in the API anyway? It's like... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be generous here, but... The vulnerability did not involve direct access to our database, but the stuff in our database just got returned through the API anyway. You know what I mean? It's it's a, it's, it's a, bit, a bit of an odd thing. Immediately upon receiving this alert from Mr. Hunt, we mobilized our team to patch the vulnerability and thoroughly ordered our platform to safeguard against any future exposure so far mostly i think the direct access database thing a little bit weird but so far i'm mostly okay now is where it gets a bit interesting we've just discussed everything that was exposed there's no debating it i've never seen a debate about what was exposed your phone number, your name, your gender, your IP address, uh, obviously your email address, your bcrypt hash password, your 2FA reset tokens, the code that allows someone to take over your account. There's a title here. What was exposed? Now, this is the entire sentence. The information scraped included email addresses and some cell phone numbers. What about all the other stuff? (laughs) you, You kind of read it and like, that statement is correct but it is also deliberately deceptive because it has not named all of the other things not only has it not named them but you know around the cell phone numbers surely the way to explain this in the spirit of transparency is your cell phone number was only exposed if you had added it to our system because a lot of people wouldn't have added it and it wouldn't be a problem for them but there's no mention of things like the ip addresses no mention Of the password hashes until I get to the next bit, or the turf, or or any of that. And they knew that at this time. They categorically knew it. What was not exposed? Decrypted passwords and direct messages were not disclosed. Now I've got two big problems with that. (sighs) By saying decrypted passwords were not exposed, the immediate assertion here is that passwords are not at risk now that's fundamentally wrong because bcrypt can be cracked and Again, we'll come back to that we'll talk more about it what was not exposed decrypted passwords the, uh, the other issue of course is that they're hashed they can't be decrypted they can be cracked there's a little bit of semantic argument uh, direct messages were not disclosed I mean, like, the colour of your underwear was also not disclosed, but, you know, to, to sort of put in here what was not disclosed is, is just kind of a weird thing. What's not said here is that because the reset tokens were exposed, anyone could have logged into anyone's account and read their direct messages. Now, they weren't returned in the API, sure, but it feels like it, it just it feels deceptive to read. That was my initial assumption when I read it. Now, I didn't say that in the blog post. I didn't need to say it because you've got all of this data that's actually been exposed. It's clearly documented. Next to a disclosure statement, people figure it out. We're taking this matter extremely seriously. We have implemented additional security measures to prevent further incidents and we will notify the appropriate authorities, including the FBI. What you can do for added security, recommend changing your password and reset two-factor. This is one of the things that I think was very poorly handled we recommend changing your password and reset two-factor this should have been done automatically and it's shitty and everyone suffers because of it but you know that all of the passwords bcrypt hash passwords have been exposed you know that many of them may be cracked particularly with weak password rules and you also know That the two-factor secrets have been exposed which entirely invalidates the second factor that has to be rotated and then it says especially if your password is used across multiple sites I mean (laughs) ironically like don't reuse your passwords but it was the exposure on spousable that puts the other sites at risk if you do reuse your passwords we recommend staying vigilant, monitoring your Spoutable account for any usual activity. Now, how do you monitor your Spoutable account other than to look and see if there's weird shit posted on your behalf? You can't look at the logins, for example. You can't invalidate the sessions. That makes it very hard. Uh, and then they had a, he had a pod session about this. Uh, I think some people here listen to the, this, this now might have been on there. If you were and you have comments about what was on there, let me know. I haven't listened to it. Now, in, in defence of Christopher, he does say, as the CEO of will I accept full responsibility for this incident. That bit's good. Since our inception, we have faced an unparalleled Unparalleled barrage of attacks aimed at undermining our community. Well, first of all, I guarantee you it's not unparalleled. <laughs> you know, go, on, go and ask Elon how many attacks they get against their platform. I don't think Spoutable is exactly the target of nation states trying to influence journalists' accounts or things like that. Like it's, it's, it's not unparalleled. It might feel like it for you, but go and ask the other guys. It's, it's, it's bad times for them. Yet, in the spirit of our community that fortifies us against these assaults, the timing of this incident, coinciding with our anniversary, is stark. One of the hurdles we face, however, let this moment not weaken us, but instead solidify our resolve. We stand united, more determined than ever, to uphold our commitment to providing a secure and inclusive platform for every voice that seeks refuge, for every story that demands to be heard. Spoutable, we we'll remain a bastion of safety and solidarity. We will persist unwavering in our dedication to champion the voices of the marginalised. Together, we will rise above this challenge and emerge stronger, forging ahead and renewed with renewed purpose and unbreakable unity. Why is there so much more information about that than there is about what actually happened? I don't disagree with any of that. That is a a unifying vision from the leader. No problems at all with that. But if you're going to take time to put content in a disclosure notice, make it disclose what actually happened. Because all this is done by leaving the vacuum of information from the leadership, is allowed other people, myself and other people who've then read this and seen what's happened, to fill in the narrative, which is why when you look at the conversations that have happened on Twitter and on Spoutable itself, there's either a lot of pissed off people or a lot of people with the little investor badge next to them being very defensive. (laughs) Uh, Which is kind of wild. I'm just looking at his, um, his spoutable profile here, and it f- just feels very much defense. I'm going to read the spoutable profile in a moment. Let's have a look at the comments over here. Um, so Ali uh, says, social media company with integrity problems couldn't remain solvent. <laughs> People would argue that Elon has integrity problems, but yeah, here we are. Mike says, it's not direct access, it's indirect, because they did give it to you without asking. Uh, what else is interesting here? Eddie likes the fact that the color of your underwear wasn't disclosed, it's good. Uh, Mike says, my state AG, Oshima Attorney General, has a breach requirement for data exposure for residents. I'm waiting to see if he reports it. Now the reporting thing is ins- uh, interesting. Every time we see a data breach somewhere, I'll see people pop up and go. Well, you're going to report it to GDPR. So you know that, like, there are other. We have, we have reporting requirements. Oh, I know. Don't forget, little Australia. We have reporting requirements. You know, or are you going to report it uh, under CCPA for California or whatever state or region they're at in the world? Now, th- this is something that the service themselves needs to assess and determine. I am curious to know if this was reported at all, and if so, under which jurisdictions. And I'm also curious for people who are in here that may be within the scope of GDPR, if you've prompted them to do that or if you've had any discussion. If I was to speculate and looking at previous incidents where non-EU companies that are small, and I, I would assume that's about all small, where they've had data breaches... Upset people within the jurisdiction of GDPR have really not been able to get much traction. Uh, And in fact, I've got multiple incidents where people have said, look, I tried to report this to my local regulator. uh, And here's the response that came back, which is effectively like, look, these folks just aren't in Europe. It's too hard. So I I don't know. Um, It'd be interesting to see where it's actually been reported to. Merrick says, for better or worse, small organization and projects are often driven by people with big personalities who often take their projects very personally. Now, I did put this in here as well. And this is where I, I feel super sympathetic to Christopher because inevitably this is, this is probably something that he's, well, evidently it's something he's very passionate about when you read his writing. Uh, he's built this to, to try, as far as I can tell, to try and make a difference, to have an alternative, to give people a voice. And all of these objectives are, are admirable and good. And in his mind, someone has come along and pissed in his cornflakes, right? <laughs> like someone has come along to try and mess with the guy. Now, uh, unfortunately, this is also the reality of having anything online. have I been paying the target of attacks all the time? Uh, everything that is online is the target of attacks all the time. Like th- this is the nature of being online. Uh, it, it, it happens, it's not necessarily personal. I, Do think in this case, if you have a look at, again, just read back through the last year of tweets and spouts and things like that, that there obviously is a big group of people who are a bit pissed at spoutable. Uh, Now, maybe this person was within that, that group and who knows, but it doesn't change the fact that there was a serious vulnerability that needed to be disclosed and people needed to be notified. Erica says he's not going to report it. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He thinks this was against him. Well, I'm not. I don't know if I totally agree with you, Erica, because he, he does say, "I accept full responsibility for this incident." So he's not denying that there was a massive flaw in the code, and he's not denying that the data was exposed. Uh, he, he's certainly spinning it. <laughs> I'll give you that much. But yeah, it, it it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting because there must be some record if it gets reported. Ali uh, says, if it's a platform for the marginalised, this info disclosure is even worse, and, and you're quite right. So, I mean, let's let's extend that that logic further. If you're marginalised, and let's say you have a greater expectation of privacy, uh, or there is information about you which would be more damaging were it to be public, you, you know, you, you're, you're a marginalised individual, you're spouting under an anonymous profile, but then your IP address and your real email address are there. You're quite right, that could be even worse. Marek says, I can see how it can be hard to separate anything that can be construed as an attack from being personal. Uh, Rob's talking about three million toothbrushes, and I think that's going to be a discussion for another day. Human Oxford says, the state of vision is is very noble, but the leadership often behaves in a way that is opposite to it. E.g. Courtney Milan controversy, see Wikipedia. I'm not up to speed with that one. Mike says, in my case... I was literally a platform user, been on it since launch, but I also work in Infosec was trying to help. Ali, I feel like for things like GDPR, if someone like Troy reporting an infraction that gets a fine, the reporter should get a bounty. Um, let's talk about the the reporter, and I'll I'll speak very generally here because I really don't have any other information other than like an, one of these anonymous platform email addresses saying, you know, here's the, here's the stuff. So obviously someone doesn't want to be named. Why do people do this? In my experience, uh, one of the reasons, and, and I think that this has an element of truth for this battle situation. One of the reasons people will go and grab a whole bunch of data and blow it up into something bigger than what it is, is because they feel if they don't do that, it won't be taken seriously. Now I'll give you a perfect example of this. I think it must've been about 2016. Um, Lorenzo from Motherboard at the time, very well-known journal, got in touch with me and he said, look, I've had someone give me, I think it was about 4 million records of VTech data. Now, VTech was a Hong Kong toy maker, still is. You might have seen VTech things. You've got kids. They do all sorts of, you know, tablets and Fisher Pricey looking toys, and someone had found I, th- I think it was just a, like a trove of different problems like sql injection direct object references like all sorts of shitty stuff and they believed that the organization wouldn't take it seriously so they dumped all the data they gave it to lorenzo and lorenzo gave it to me and it went into to have a bandpan and the entire basis for this person dumping it all was that they felt the organization wouldn't take it seriously they felt that if they reported it privately it would just get swept under the carpet. Uh, other people could have p- possibly grabbed that data, abused it, done whatever, and it just wouldn't get disclosed. This happens very, very often where people are, I don't think this company is going to take it seriously. I'm going to force their hand. Now, to be clear, and this is, a, I mean, it's, it's a gray area with this guy because he scraped a public API, I assume it's a guy, who knows, Anonymous <laughs> account. They scraped a publicly available API. It's a little bit different when it's like SQL injection where you have found a vulnerability that you are exploiting as opposed to, I just requested public APIs and the data was turning to me. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not gonna sort of say what, whether or not it's a criminal act or not. But for many people, they do well and truly step into that criminal space In order to make the point and they try to do so anonymously and very often that's just the way they stay but so many times it is because they don't feel the organization will take it seriously now when I was reading all this before the disclosure going back looking at the history of Spoutable looking at Christopher's previous interactions I can see how this person would draw that conclusion and again like go just go back and read the history yourself so I believe a large part of why they have approached this the way they did was to force the organization to have to deal with it. Because you can imagine if they just got in touch and said, hey, you're returning too much of this data, you can imagine it being fixed and them never saying anything, which I don't think is the right thing to do because they've returned these bcrypted passwords and 2 of secrets and reset codes and they have no idea of knowing how abused it was. I can see why. I'm not condoning it, but I can see the path they took to get there. Ah... Ali says, uh, I feel like things like GDPR, if someone like Trozo, we did that, get a bug bounty. David uh, says he defo will not report it. He does not report his previous gaff either. The past that made me laugh was his use of team. Unauthorized access, Gravitas. Mike says, you've got Gravitas. Uh, yeah, uh, and that's that, to be honest. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank you. But that's why people often send things to me because they know if it's bad, like I'll, I'll get it fixed and i'll get transparency now when we have a look through some of the spouts here one of the things and and, okay it's his platform he spouts a lot i understand that but what's quite interesting is uh, somewhere in here it looks like they have forced new password criteria which is good uh, I think I mentioned this earlier on now the, the password criteria is is not great <laughs> in that it's very much your traditional arbitrary password complexity criteria stuff uh, but I think if we look at it from the perspective of it is an acknowledgement that something had to change with the, the password strength that's good but it also makes you realize you've just said over here what was not exposed to encrypted passwords there's no mention in the disclosure about passwords being at risk yet you've now strengthened the password criteria Uh, and were they forcing resets? Let me just have a read through someone quoted or rather sent me a tweet where they got a massive screen grab and they've highlighted a whole bunch of the things that Christopher said here Uh, Yeah, and Christopher makes a fair point here. He says, a person doesn't need to scrape 200,000 plus accounts to reveal a vulnerability. They could have easily contacted us or Troy, outlined the security flaw. So, to suggest that scraping the Twitter, uh, scraping of the data and giving it to Troy wasn't malicious is MAGA delusion. Is that MAGA like Trump MAGA? Am I missing something here? Anywho, um, but this is really the point I just spoke about where, based on the handling of previous incidents and based on the communication of the organization, I can see this person validly assuming that by doing this, it wouldn't have been taken seriously. If the person just found the data, they wouldn't have given it to Troy exact details of the vulnerability or that they would they would have, they wouldn't have given Troy exact details of vulnerability. Moreover, they would have contacted us first instead of Troy. Yes, it was an attack and they want it to be public. Um, let's do the b crypt thing. So Christopher said here, contrary to what is being said on other platforms, bcrypt hash passwords are very secure as long as you use a strong password. Now he's right. We're going to come back to that. Keep saying that, don't I? So no, an attacker can't decrypt any password at will and enter your account, well, they don't need to because they've got the reset code, even if they have the hashed version of your password. And then he's got like a time to crack graph. Now I fucking hate these time to crack graphs. Sorry, Christopher. And the reason why... Is because they make massive, massive assumptions about passwords. Now, I'll give you an idea of what's in here. Uh, it says, uh, time to crack bcrypt passwords. <laughs> now, also, bcrypt is an adaptive hashing algorithm. You can determine the work factor that's applied to the bcrypt hash. It's an exponentially increasing work factor. So, if you have a work factor of 10, which is what they have, and you go to 11, it's going to take twice as long to calculate, therefore, crack the hash nowhere here does it actually talk about the worth factor because that's the sort of nuances that get lost when you end up with these massive graphs number of characters six numbers only cracked instantly but if you have six number upper and lower it's going to be cracked in 22 hours 22 hours on the dot so many variables here you know, what sort of hardware are you are using what sort of gpu is it only one gpu More importantly, what sort of word list are you using? What sort of uh, 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 calculation approach are you using to the hashes? Are you working through ranges? Are you just doing like everything alphanumeric, uppercase, lowercase, no matter how bizarre it is? Or do you have a word list of feasible passwords that people either commonly use or would likely use against spoutable? And I would bet you, if you had a word list that had just a dozen variations of the word spoutable spoutable or lowercase, spoutable with a capital S, spoutable one, spoutable one, exclamation mark. You would crack many of the passwords. I'm just going to say many, which means more than one. (laughs) But you crack a bunch of them because that's the sort of thing people do. So I don't like the assertion that these tables mean anything at all outside the context of the actual strength of the password. So let's do the bit about talking about password hashing and cracking. In the beginning, (laughs) this is one of the modules we've done in the workshop 100 plus times. So that was off the top of my head. In the beginning, we had plain text. If your database gets owned or you inadvertently return the passwords in an unsecured API, the plain text is immediately visible and it's immediately usable. You can take that password as an attacker. You can enter it into the website and log in immediately. That was bad. So we started using hashes. And hashes are one way deterministic algorithms. So it's one way you can hash, but you cannot unhash. Now, just as a good example, before we're talking about was that EM code, was it an MD5 string or a SHA-1? It was SHA-1, it was 40 bytes long. Every single SHA-1 hash is 40 bytes long. Whether your input is speltable or lowercase, or it's a SHA-1 hash of an entire massive document, it boils down to 40 characters long. You can't reverse a massive document from 40 characters. If you have encryption, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more content you put in there. A hash is always that one-way representation of the original content. And very often we use hashes for things like integrity checks. If we know the hash of a document, we can say if that document appears somewhere else, well, so long as it hashes to the same thing, we know it's the same document, the whole thing about hash collisions and all the other stuff aside. It's one way. It's deterministic in that every time we hash the same input, we get the same output. If I have the word spoutable and I MD5 it, it, so long as the encoding's the same, it doesn't matter whether it's on my machine or your machine or a server, we always get the same output. So we're using hashes for passwords because we can provide a password at registration, create a hash, store it in the database, provide a password at login, create a hash, compare it, and if it's the same input, you get the same output. The password matches, you didn't need to store it in plain text. Job done, everybody's happy. But the deterministic nature of it means that once you know the hash for a plain text input, then you can always create an index, or a rainbow table as we used to call them, of plain text hash pairs. So we used to have rainbow tables numbering in the billions and billions of plain text next to the hash so that when you got a data breach, you could go, I'm gonna get all of those MD5 hashes and I can compare it to the MD5 hashes in the rainbow table, and if I find the hash, the plaintext is next to it, we've cracked the hash, job done. So predictability was what undid hashes. So we added salt, and salt is just random bytes. Every single person gets their own salt. The salt and the password get combined before they get hashed. Now, because everyone has their own salt, even if everybody used a password, as spoutable, everybody would get a separate hash. That hash will never have been seen before if the salt is sufficiently random. So we've solved the problem. Like, rainbow tables don't work anymore. The next problem is, well, what if you just recompute the hash? What if you take a word list? Now, you can either get a list of words that are common passwords or you can generate things within a mask. So, you know, uh, just give me six alphanumeric characters uh, and just keep guessing them. You know, it's, it's a finite character set. We're going to generate it, add it to the salt, hash it, compare it to the hash from the database. Does it match? No. Go on to the next one. If you can do that fast enough, you start to guess a lot of hashes in a very small amount of time. For hashing algorithms like MD5, SHA-1, SHA-256, SHA-512, all of these, you can make multiple billions of requests, multiple billions of calculations per second using modern GPU consumer-grade hardware. So let's say it's MD5 and you're doing 40 billion requests a second, 40 billion calculations a second. It Doesn't matter that it's salted. It just means you have to do every password one by one. Every salt is different. You know, you go to one password, you get the salt, you get your word list, you make 20 billion guesses in a second, you figure it out pretty soon. Now that was problematic. So we said the issue here is that we're calculating hashes too fast. We need to make it slower. So we need to hash and hash and hash and hash again, or make it iterative or create a work factor that forces the processor to work harder. And this is why we have the likes of bcrypt. And bcrypt is an adaptive hashing algorithm that runs slow, tens of thousands of times slower than MD5 or the SHA variants. So if we can run tens of thousands of times slower, we can slow the progress of the attacker by tens of thousands of times, not stop it, but slow it. And and this is the key difference. It doesn't stop cracking. It just slows it. What if you've got multiple GPUs and you line them all up together and you create some massive hash cracking rig and suddenly you're doing it in 12 parallel threads? Well, you go 12 times as fast. Maybe we should make the work factor higher. Well, you can do that, but then you've also got a system which every time someone registers, logs in or changes their password, you need to create a hash. And then that creates overhead on the systems and it's probably cloud and you're probably paying by CPU cycles. Anyway, whole other of worms there. The point is, is that you can crack bcrypt hashes, it just takes a lot longer. So when we see messages like this around the fact that if it's bcrypt, it's gonna be however many quadrillion years, <laughs> I'm just looking at the graph here. That's extraordinarily misleading because it very much comes down to the resources of the adversary and then the strength of the input password. And this is really key. I could create passwords on websites that store them as unsalted MD5 and they won't be cracked. And the reason I can do that is because I go to my password manager and I generate crazy long random strings that are gonna take so long to calculate that for all practical intents and purposes, they won't be cracked. Conversely, if you went to Spoutable and you created a password of Spoutable and they stored it as bcrypt, you're going to crack that very quickly. So the strength of the password that gets hashed is a really, really big part of how resilient that hashing algorithm is. Now that's a lot of words to put in a disclosure message, which is why usually, when bcrypt hashes, and I'd say 90 plus percent of the time when we see a data breach with an adaptive hashing algorithm, it is bcrypt. We don't see many of the scripts or the argons or things like that, the pbkdf2s. Uh, 90% of the time, it's going to be bcrypt, and 100% of the time, we should be seeing the organisation say, <coughs> your password's going to be rotated. Your password has been disclosed, is in the public domain, it needs to be rotated. Now, someone made the point to me, I think via the Twitters before they said, what I'd do is I would go and find a credential stuffing list and I'd find the person's email address and I'd find passwords that they use and I'd use that to try and crack the password. I'm like, well, you already have the password anyway. You might as well just try credential stuffing in the online service. You know, that's kind of cheating with the password cracking if you've got a really good idea of what that specific password is already. But regardless, the point is, is that you can't just go through and say, look, your hashes are resilient. Now Scott's just joined in He did it in the morning. So Scott's been doing our our Hack Yourself First workshop in Reykjavik at the moment. He's not been swallowed by the volcano based on him being here, uh, sending messages. But this is exactly what we do in the workshop. Uh, It is crackable. In fact, we go through in the workshop and do cracking of hashes. Uh, Where do we go with the comments here? Human Octopus, when Wired reported on the first incident, he asked for a retraction. (laughs) He hasn't asked me for a retraction. I don't know what I'd say if he did too. Mike, that's really nice. Marek says, perhaps it would help if cybersecurity reporting is enabled through a framework like the Australian government cybersecurity site, for example. Not perfect, but a good start. We don't really have an industry framework or standard for doing this. Um, But we do have a set of fairly well-established industry expectations for how things are reported and documented and responded to. And it's when we deviate from that that we have situations like this. Rob says, any quantum computers will be able to decrypt password hashes. Don't say decrypt, Rob. It's not decrypt. It's crack. Instantly and in an infinite amount of time at the same time. Yeah, which is why we're starting to see a lot more chat about quantum resilient algorithms for cryptography and for password hashing. But at the moment, that's not a problem and when it does become a problem it's going to become a problem for the big nation-state heavy-hitting stuff before it becomes a problem for the uh, small upstart social media platforms Ben says yeah I was looking at commercial app yesterday using MD 5 for login passwords Yay, Paul can you not use a massive and unique per row salt to mitigate against a weak password well, it, it doesn't really matter that the salt might be larger. The point is that the salt is unique, and if you add it to the password and then you hash it, you get the output. And if you can compare that and it matches, you've got the same problem. Uh, the, the, the best mitigation to that, Dropbox did a really good write-up, and Scott and I normally show this in the workshop. Uh, they did a really good write-up after their 2012 incident, which then went public in 2016, where what they were doing is that they were they were actually or, or after the, the Dropbox Data breach, unfortunately not before. They would SHA 512 the original password and they use SHA 512 because it's a high entropy hashing algorithm. It creates a very, very long output, really massively reduces the risk of um, hash collisions. They would then bcrypt that, uh, and the reason they did that is bcrypt will only Take input strings. Tell me if I'm wrong, Scott. Up to 72 characters, but by SHA-512 at first, it was less than 72 characters, and then they would encrypt that, like proper encryption, not when we call hashing encryption. So that what you ended up now is a, a SHA-512 inside a bcrypt inside an encrypted parcel, for want of a better term. Uh, so you would have to, as an attacker, you would have to get the private key. So now we, there's a key management discussion, but Dropbox should be able to do that. All right. You'd have to be able to get the private key and then you would have the bcrypt hashes within there and you'd have to get through that as well. So that, is, that to me is, is still the way i do it. Scott's got the link there. Thank you very much. Now, what else was in uh, Christopher's comments here? Um, have you been waiting a year for something to happen so you can bring up our adult content policy? Oh, don't worry about that. Uh, I'd suggest reading what Troy Hunt wrote again because decrypted capital passwords were not capital exposed. Yes, but it's still a problem. (laughs) Like, it is still a problem. I do have 207,000 Bcrypt hashes. Just the hashes. Not associated to anyone else. Which is effectively the sort of stuff we'd put in plain passwords. We'd put plain text passwords in there. If anyone out there listen to this is a serious hash cracking guru who would like to see how many of the 207,000 bcrypt hashes not associated to any PII, how many of those could be cracked in a reasonable amount of time. Drop me a direct message on Twitter. So, I've been going for a long time on this and I need to go and play tennis (laughs) and it's dried up so I don't think I can really add any more to this. It's kind of wild that it, again it really at its heart, it was like one flaw, one problem that just persisted too much data from the data tier to the ui this could have been explained in a much more i guess humble transparent way without creating the amount of drama around it at the moment uh, and if you want to see what i mean just just go to like spoutable.com, look at c boozy c-b-o-u-z-y uh it is, yeah. It's just it's just a shame that it wasn't handled better, uh, because they, they got off on such a good start, you know, by fixing that problem so quickly. Uh, and I just wish that the whole thing had been a lot more seamless. Just seeing if there's any other interesting discussion out here about this before we uh, wrap up. If anyone has any questions about this, drop them in the in the comments here on on YouTube. If you've got questions later on, there will be a blog post uh, for every video I do every week. Feel free to drop the questions in there and I'll answer them or on the, the post that's already up there about Spoutable. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, just read and form your own opinions. Okay, folks, I'm going to wrap it up there. This has been a, a long weekly update, so thank you very much for joining uh, and I'll see you next week and there'll be an all-new data breach to talk about by then. See